0: Well, it's lovely to be with you again. Um, We're going to look at something slightly different again this morning, uh, mainly because there's a new sermon series brewing. I'm just not sure exactly what it is yet, so please be patient and watch this space. Um, Hopefully it won't be a 29-week sermon series through something, Um, but we we will have a look at a particular book or passage later. But if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Micah, And I'd like us to spend some time looking at the book as a whole, but then zooming in on one particular passage uh, in chapter 6. The book of Micah can be found among a group of books known as the Minor Prophets. Minor meaning small rather than digging for gold. Long books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel are known as the major prophets, but the 12 smaller books, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are known as the minor prophets. Maybe just to say that while these men are called prophets, they were mainly engaged in forth telling rather than foretelling. In other words, they weren't primarily telling people the future, rather they were involved in taking the existing Old Testament law and applying it into their current situation, a little bit like good preaching is supposed to do, taking God's word and applying it to a new time and situation. Some of you might be thinking, well, I'm glad we're going to hear about Micah. I don't know very much about Micah. But I think that if you read the book, you'll discover that actually you do know a little bit about Micah. You read a section from Micah regularly, every year, in fact, at Christmas, although maybe you'd forgotten it was from Micah. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times." That is actually an instance of predictive prophecy in the book, Micah foretelling the coming of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And of course the chief priests and the teachers of the law quote that in Matthew chapter 2. Micah was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah in about 735 B.C., You may remember that after King Solomon, the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah with its capital Jerusalem. A little bit like today where you have northern island and southern island being two separate nations. Micah came from a little farming village called Morasheth in the southern kingdom of Judah and we're not 100% sure what he did before he became a prophet. It's quite possible that he had a farming background himself, but at some stage in his life he received a specific call from God to be a prophet. Micah's name means who is like the Lord? If you have a look at the first verse in the book of Micah, you will see that Micah lived during the reigns of three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, Both Jotham and his father before him had a really great army, and during their three reigns, Judah was able to take over some of the territory belonging to the surrounding nations. And, of course, when you take over somebody's territory, you also take over their wealth. And Judah became fairly wealthy. But, as so often happens in wealthy countries, all that happened was that the rich got richer, whereas the poor got poorer. Now, one of the main problems during the time of Micah was the nation of Assyria, It was the major superpower of that time, and in fact, it would be the nation that would eventually wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel and come right up to the very border of Judah. But in fact, it wasn't the enemy outside of Judah that was the major problem. It was the sin of the people of Judah that was most serious. The enemy was within rather than without. Basically, during Micah's time, there were two kinds of sin being committed. There was economic sin, and there was religious sin. So first of all, there was the economic sin of the people. As I said to you, in Micah's time, the rich got richer, and the poor got poorer. Where have we seen that before? And as so often happens, the rich got rich at the expense of the poor, And you can see this if you have a look at the first two verses of chapter 2. Micah says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance." So the rich people in both Judah and Israel were grabbing the land from the poor people so that they could get richer. And you must remember that in Micah's time, um, the land was, they they lived in a farming community. Land was very important because it was your livelihood. Uh, You couldn't earn an income without a piece of land. And Micah rebukes the people then for taking land from one another. According to Israelite law, God gave the land to the people and therefore the land was considered to be God's and didn't belong to any particular person. In fact, when Israel first entered the land of Israel, God carefully and equally distributed it among each family group so that each family had a piece of land and the ability to earn an income. In fact, we we read about this in Leviticus chapter 25. Um, God says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. So the land was considered to be God. It was carefully parceled out and it couldn't be sold permanently. But you may remember that in the same chapter, Leviticus 25, we read about the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year, the land was supposed to revert back to its original family owners. So you could buy and sell land, but every 50 years it went back to the original family so that nobody ever lost their ability to earn an income through farming. Interestingly, we have no biblical record that the Israelites ever kept this year of Jubilee. Quite the opposite, in fact. The rich were able to evict the poor from their land because they controlled the legal system. In fact, if you have a look at chapter 7 and verses 2 to 4, you will see that Micah speaks about this. He says, the rulers demand gifts, the judge accepts bribes, the powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. Again, where have we seen land grabbing, forced removals, bribery? Besides these sins, the rich were also involved in ripping off poor people in the marketplace. If you have a look at chapter six, God says, "Am I to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures and the short ephah which is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales with a bag of false weights?" Her rich men are violent, her people are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. So the ephah was the standard unit of measurement in the marketplace in the Old Testament. And what was happening was that the people were making the ephah a lot smaller than it should have been, so that people were getting a lot less grain than they should have been getting. Not only that, but the shopkeepers were changing their weights as well. They made the unit for measuring silver a lot lighter. So you would end up paying a lot more silver for a lot less grain. Again, something that is specifically forbidden in God's law. We read about it in Leviticus 19. God says, do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights, an honest ephah and an honest hen. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. But far worse than just the economic sin of the people was the religious sin of the people. The people were busy ripping one another off and oppressing one another, filling the country with violence, and yet at the same time they were pretending that they were religious. If you have a look at chapter 3, Micah says, Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become like a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound mound overgrown with thickets. In the same way as the rich people tried to manipulate the legal system, they also tried to manipulate the prophets and the priests. If you have a look at chapter 3, this is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare to wage war against him. In other words, when their preachers were well-paid, they would preach on passages like Psalm 23. But when they weren't well-paid, they'd do a 29-week sermon series through the book of Revelation with a major emphasis on fire and brimstone. (laughs) And the prophets felt perfectly safe in doing this. Chapter 2, verse 6. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. And I love what Micah says uh, about the prophets in chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. So these were the two sins of the nation, uh, the economic sin and religious sin. And because of this, God says through Micah that both kingdoms are doomed. In chapter 1, he prophesies about the destruction of Samaria, the capital city of Israel. And then in chapter 4, he prophesies that the southern kingdom of Judah will be taken into exile in Babylon Matters then come to a head in chapter 6, the passage I'd like to zoom in on this morning. Because in this chapter, God takes his people to court and he lays a charge against them. He calls on the mountains around Israel to act as witnesses against his people. Remember in Deuteronomy, uh, when the law is given, God calls on the mountains to be a witness uh, to his people about whether they will obey his law or not. And now he comes and he declares that the mountains have seen that his people uh, have been unfaithful. Have a look at the first part of chapter 6. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you. From the land of slavery. Well, both kingdoms know that they're in trouble. They know that they've been condemned by God, and they know that they've been rightly condemned by God. And so the question is what do we do? How can we make it right? What do we need to do in order to get right with God again? And that brings us to the verses that I want us to look at in a little bit more detail this morning. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Let me read the whole section before going through it again in a bit more detail. Here an anonymous worshipper asks the question, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The underlying assumption of these verses, the question that this anonymous worshiper asks is, what shall I do? What do I need to do to come to God? And then he gives a a long list of possible items that he could bring, uh, each time getting bigger and bigger and better and better. He says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings? That was the most expensive offering that you could give to God. Most of the sacrifices involved giving some of the meat to God to be burned and the rest for you as a family to eat. But with the burnt offering, all of it was burnt up for God. So it was the most expensive sacrifice. Uh, If that wasn't enough, maybe the worshipper can offer something even more expensive. Uh, calves, a year old animals that would have been at their very peak of strength and therefore would fetch the best price at the marketplace. Uh, Maybe if the quality wasn't sufficient, uh, the worshipper could go for quantity. Will the Lord be pleased with 10,000 rams? Uh, Perhaps he's thinking back to the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, where we read that Solomon offered 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the worshipper is asking if it's the number of sacrifices that are important to God. He increases the number even further when he speaks about oil, something that was often uh, used along with the sacrifices. Will God be pleased with 10,000 rivers of oil? In his desperation, the worshipper even thinks about the most costly sacrifice that he could ever make, Uh, This was something that was strictly forbidden in Israelite law. The Israelites didn't practice it, but the pagans sometimes did. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And yet at the end of this long list, the worshipper falls silent because he does not know what else to bring. And into this silence, God himself speaks through his prophet Micah and he tells the people what he wants from them. In fact, it's something that the Israelites should have known already. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The people of Israel and Judah thought that God wanted a religious response. They thought that it was what went on in the temple that was important to God. And still today, some people think that it's what goes on in church on a Sunday that pleases God. But God says to the people, it's not what happens in the temple that is important. It's not something that I want. It's someone that I want. You. And in the rest of this passage, God gives the Israelites and us three verbs that are important for our relationship with him. Firstly, God calls us to act justly. To act justly means to do what is right in any given situation. And in Micah's time, that had special reference for the weakest members of society. It meant putting aside the land grabbing, the ripping off of the poor in the marketplace. And in our own lives, it's the same. To act justly means to act responsibly for the weakest members of society, widows, orphans, those with disabilities, the poor, the elderly, the unborn. We need to make sure that as Christians we've got the same concern for the poor that God does. Deuteronomy chapter 10, we read about God's concern for the poor. The writer of Deuteronomy says that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And if we want to be called sons and daughters of God, then we need to take on this characteristic of our father. In fact, I'm sure that you remember that in the book of James we're told Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. To act justly. Secondly, we're told that God wants us to love mercy. The word that Micah uses here for mercy is the Hebrew word chesed. Uh, and chesed is variously translated in the Bible, it's translated as do good or kindness, or loving kindness, unfading love. But there are three elements to chesed. Firstly, chesed is relational. It occurs in interpersonal relationships, normally between individuals. Secondly, it's something that is active. This loving kindness isn't a feeling, rather it's an action. That's why it's so often translated, do good. And then thirdly, it's enduring. It's not something that happens for a moment and then is forgotten. It's an ongoing attitude and an ongoing action. Chesed is what Rahab shows the spies in the book of Joshua. She shows them Chesed by hiding them from the king of Jericho. Chesed is what Ruth shows to her mother-in-law Naomi when she says, Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. May the Lord deal with me if anything but death separates you and me. Chesed is what David shows to Mephibosheth when he seeks to do good for this man who has a disability and can't provide for himself. And Chesed is what God demonstrates to his people. The word chesed is most often used of God in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 103, we read that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, chesed. Chesed is what God shows us in that he doesn't leave us in our sin, but he sends his son to die for us. And what God has done for us, he asks that we do for one another, showing unfailing love, love that desires the best for one another. In Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Act justly, love mercy. Issues of justice and mercy get very complicated, don't they? Especially in South Africa. There's such a huge amount of need. It can feel overwhelming. There are people who try to rip us off. Whenever somebody asks us for something, we're wondering, where is this money really going to go? Not only that, but we have the theological issues, the rise of the social gospel Uh, The belief that if you raise someone out of poverty, if you clothe them, if you feed them, if you house them, then in some way you have saved them. And that's an error. The poor need the gospel. The poor need Jesus. Yes, we can certainly demonstrate the gospel by our good deeds, but practicing the gospel must never eclipse proclaiming and sharing the good news about Jesus. It's a very complicated space, and that's one of the reasons we have a mercy and justice team as part of the Pinelands Baptist Church. Men and women who are passionate about justice and mercy, and who give us practical ideas and guidance as to how we can practically demonstrate the love of God while preaching the gospel of God. So I don't have all of the answers and solutions this morning, but I, I think it's important that we prayerfully think through these issues. Uh, at the moment, I'm reading a really challenging teaching on simplicity by John Mark Comer. Uh, it's so challenging, I, I think I may give up reading it at some point. Uh, this past week, too, I, I had the very humbling experience of visiting Langer Baptist Church for the first time in my life so sad it's a kilometer away as the crow flies and yet it was the first time I'd been there and it was so humbling as a white person to be warmly greeted by brothers and sisters of color who love and serve God in extremely difficult circumstances. Uh, They also used the Langer High School for some of the sessions uh, and it was deeply disturbing to see the gap between what my own children have in terms of education and facilities and what those children have. As I said, I don't have all the answers, but maybe just a few pointers and questions to get us thinking. So so do listen out for the Mercy and Justice team, the the events that they put together, whether that's L'Orato's Hope or Reading for Hope or some of the difficult conversations around race. Do consider supporting Christian organizations that do help with poverty alleviation, uh, such as U-Turn. Let's spend some time considering our lifestyles. Uh, How much am I buying into the propaganda of the advertising industry that says that I'm defined by what I have and what I own? Am I buying the next thing because I think it'll make me happy or because I genuinely need it? Are there things that I have, excess, that I could be giving to others? What would it mean for us as a classic congregation to be a place where, as Acts 2 puts it, there was no needy people among them because they had everything in common? I think it's important to, from time to time, carve out time to prayerfully work through these and other questions because they form part of what it is the Lord requires from us. So act justly, love mercy. And then the third action that we're given in this passage is that we're commanded to walk humbly. Walk with God. It's a wonderful picture. In fact, it's a picture that's often used in the Old Testament to to describe a close, intimate relationship with God. You may remember that the first person in the Bible who's described as walking with God is Enoch, Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 is one of those horribly boring chapters because it gives a long list of the names of people. And at the end of the description of each one, it says, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. Just the kind of thing you want to read after New Year. Very depressing. But right in the middle of all of these people who simply lived and died, we have the story of Enoch, Enoch. Verse 21, we read that when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah, and after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. Everyone else in this chapter simply lived, but Enoch walked with God, and so God took him away to be with him. I remember one preacher saying that Enoch and God used to go for a walk every day, and they'd start off from Enoch's house, and each day they'd get a little bit further and a little bit further, and so that one day when it came time for them to turn around and go home, God said to Enoch, you know, we're a lot closer to my house than we are to your house. How about coming back to my house today? To me, this is such an important action, to walk with God. See, many of us measure our Christianity by an event that took place in the past. When When did you become a Christian? Well, I became a Christian at the age of 13 on a scripture union camp, or I've been a Christian for the past 23 years. But sadly, sometimes that means that our Christian faith is measured historically and not presently. Micah says that we're to walk with God, which suggests something that happens actively in the present continuous tense. I guess there are various ways of walking with God. One immediately thinks of things like Bible reading and prayer, corporate worship. I think it is vitally important to begin the day with God, to spend some time reading his word and praying but beyond that, I think it's important to try and turn our thoughts towards God throughout the day. You know, in this next hour, Lord, won't you help me? In this meeting, won't you help me? Trying to bring our thoughts and our attention back to the God who is always there. And I don't know, maybe you could get one of those old Casio watches that beeps every hour to remind you of God's presence Maybe you could split your quiet time instead of into just one section, split it over three sections, morning, afternoon, briefly, and in the evening. Just finding ways to recognize that we walk with God all of the time, that he's always there. And notice particularly that we're called to walk humbly. Humbly. This past week I was reading a prayer by John Bailey in which he he asked to be delivered from uncreaturely pride. It's important to remind ourselves that we're part of God's creation. A little lower than the angels, yes, but still as much a part of the created order as birds and lions and wild goats who depend on God. To walk humbly recognizes that there is a God and we are not him. It involves reverence, dependence, and childlike trust. And just to say, too, that the best evidence that we're walking with God is seen in our interactions with others. And so we come full circle again. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 4, For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And a little earlier in chapter 3, John gets a bit more specific and says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? The evidence that we're truly walking with God is seen in how we act justly and love mercy. So just three words from God's word today, really, after all of that. (laughs) Act Love, walk. Somebody said that that would be a good word to leave on a tombstone. <laughs> when we get to the end of our lives, what will people say about us? Well, he had a good house, he drove a nice car, he had a good wife. What will they say? He acted justly, he loved mercy, he walked humbly with God. To me, that would be a legacy worth leaving. The wonderful thing about the book of Micah is that although it's a book of bad news for the people, it's also a book of good news because Micah looks beyond the punishment of the nation and he looks forward to a time when God would come again and bless his people. He looks beyond the Assyrian invasion of Israel and the Babylonian captivity of Judah to the time when the people will in fact even come back to the land. And as we've seen, he also saw the coming of Jesus, the coming of the final time when God would be with his people. And the book of Micah actually ends on a positive note. Remember that Micah's name means, who is like the Lord? Well, the book ends with a pun on Micah's name, and it gives us hope and encouragement. Because in Micah chapter 7, we read, who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this little book of Micah, written 2,700 years ago and yet still so relevant to our own time and lives. (coughs) And we just pray, please, that uh, as we perhaps have the courage to go away this afternoon and read it again for ourselves, that you'd allow these three characteristics to be true of of our hearts and lives, that we would act justly, and love mercy and walk humbly with you. Thank you that when we walk humbly with you, you show us ways in which we can act justly and love mercy. And so what you guide us, both in our own individual lives and as the classic congregation and as the Pinance Baptist Church. We thank you for all the ways in which we are learning to love others in a South African context. And we ask, please, that you'd give us greater insight greater opportunities to both preach your word and demonstrate it practically. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.